Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week we have another presidential candidate on the podcast, Senator Kamala Harris. She sits down with Indy's lead 2020 elections reporter, Megan Messerly, to talk about her campaign so far, healthcare policy, and other issues concerning the state. After that, reporter Michelle Rendells and I chat about her new series on pot, which dives into the state's rollout of legal recreational use and problems with licensing that have arisen, along with naming names of those in the industry. Later, Michelle and I talk about two new books she's read in our Indie Reads segment. But first, let me give you a quick rundown on some of the recent stories that we've run. Originally reported by Riley Snyder, the Southern Nevada Water Authority is proposing a 10-year marketing deal with the future Las Vegas Raiders that will pay the NFL franchise more than $30 million in tax dollars over the next decade, enabling the agency to use team logos and place advertising in the $1.9 billion Allegiant Stadium. The deal is up for approval at the Water Authority's next board meeting and is a major expansion of the current marketing budget with professional sports teams. The agency's total advertising campaign for water compliance and conservation is roughly $4.9 million a year. The Water District says it expects to reap water conservation benefits through the targeting of a large and more diverse audience than a normal marketing campaign. The contract will buy the authority digital and physical advertising spaces on TV, radio, social media, and at the stadium in a variety of places, such as a team-operated billboard near the stadium on Interstate 15. The contract also requires the Raiders to donate $600,000 a year for the installment or upgrade of two Clark County School District football fields from grass to synthetic turf. Originally reported by Jackie Valley and Shannon Miller, some are seeking shelter in a designated area called the Courtyard Homeless Resource Center, but overcrowding is causing others to seek refuge in parks or quiet places where they hope not to be found by police, now that sleeping or camping in downtown is a misdemeanor. Las Vegas is one of many cities nationwide that have adopted controversial ordinances, which critics say criminalize homelessness, but defenders say funnel people towards resources that could help them, and prevents them from camping out in front of businesses that rely on foot traffic. Community concerns have been raised that there are not enough beds. About 1,400 beds are on the city's list of approved shelters for roughly 5,500 homeless individuals, counted in the 2019 point-in-time census. But the Las Vegas ordinance includes a provision stating it can't be enforced if local shelters have reached capacity. If the shelters are full, tickets and arrests will be suspended until 6 a.m. the following day. Local service providers have also expressed concern about the homeless problem's underlying issues, such as addiction and mental illness, pointing out that nearly half of those surveyed in the 2019 homeless census self-reported mental illness as a factor contributing to their homelessness. To check out this story and the ones previously mentioned, you can go to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, to read more. So we're joined today on the podcast by California Senator Kamala Harris. Welcome. Thank you for being Thank here. You. It's good to be with you. Wonderful. Well, I wanted to start off talking about the sad news in, in Fresno this morning um, that we heard. What's the latest that you've heard? I just wanted to, to get a sense of that. I don't have any more updates, but I do know that, um, you know, yet again, tragedy is striking mm-hmm. and it keeps happening and it is happening throughout California. It's happening around our country. And um, I'm just fed up with it. I honestly am. It's what we are finding is that whole communities and really our country has become, you know, 
terrorized by this. And we need, we need action. We need action. We need action that understands that it's a false choice to say you're either in favor of the Second Amendment or you want to take everyone's guns away. We can have reasonable gun safety laws, including universal background checks and a renewal of the assault weapons ban. And one of the reasons I'm running is I'm just I've, – I've hugged more mothers of homicide victims than I care to tell you. I have seen more autopsy photographs than I care to tell you as a former prosecutor. And I have met over the course of just the last you know, year more kids, elementary, middle, high school students – who are literally crying that they are afraid they're going to die because of some mass shooter. We need to take action. And as long as I've been in the United States you know, Senate, which is just a couple of years, I've, I've seen firsthand that people there just don't have the courage to act. And so when elected president, I'm prepared to take executive action and say, hey, enough is enough. Universal background checks, and let's ban at least the importation of assault weapons into our country. Right. Obviously, it's such a crucial issue for, for folks here who— Yeah, 1 you know, October. Yeah, I mean, exactly. the, biggest, the biggest slaughter of human beings in the history. I wanted to turn at a different subject now, a yeah. little bit about your campaign, just yeah. sort of what, everything that's going on right now. I uh, saw you just a little over a week ago at the Culinary Union Hall. Yeah. There was a lot of enthusiasm, excitement, yes. and, you know, energy. Uh, yes. It just seemed like the crowd was really you know, fired up uh, yeah. to see you. But I'm curious, and I, I asked you about this when you were in town last week, but you've mm-hmm. sort of, your polling numbers you know, haven't quite matched that right here in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And I know you've said you, know, you don't put a lot of stock in polling, only polling that matters is election day, right? But what do you think it's going to take to, to really have that breakout moment here in Nevada and then nationally as well? The challenge for my campaign is that you know, three of the top people polling are, have been on the national stage for decades, mm-hmm. literally for decades. And so the challenge that we have is to, to do the work of introducing ourselves. But what, what, what I know and what you saw even at the culinary workers is that when we have the opportunity to be before people, there's an incredible amount of support and enthusiasm around my candidacy. And I think in large part it's because I'm speaking to the issues that wake people up in the middle of the night. I'm speaking to the issues that are fundamentally about the need to correct the various injustices in our country, be it economic justice, be it immigra- justice for immigrants, be it what we need to do around health care justice. People come to us. Mine has been a career of actually doing work on almost all of these issues, not just about a lovely speech, but actually doing the work. And I think people want to know that in their president, they have someone who has a commitment based on experience. And also, I will say that Our country needs to heal. People are exhausted. And like it or not, these powerful forces, including Donald Trump, have gained some traction in terms of trying to divide our country. And I know, based on every life experience I've had, based on the many places where I've lived and the cultures in which I've lived, I know the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And I know I am uniquely, I think, position to be able to help unify our country. I'm curious where your campaign goes from here. There was an article in Politico on Friday that that quoted a senior official in your campaign as saying that the current state of the campaign is, quote, no discipline, no plan, no strategy. There's another Politico article yesterday citing some California Democrats questioning whether you should stay in the race or get out of it. You know, obviously, you want to stay in this race. You're you're not done fighting. You you should also know that at the California Democratic Convention, there was a standing ovation. (laughs) 
Right, right. If you have so, this. Well, and so that's that's a question, right? There is this enthusiasm. With like you know, tens of thousands of people. Right, yeah, right. So there yeah. is this like enthusiasm that you've seen, but I think the question is, you know, if you have, you know, there's there's a difference there, right? There's this, on, on one hand, you know, folks maybe privately saying, you know, should you get out of the race? Folks having concerns about your campaign. And even if you disagree, there's a perception there, right? So what do you do to counteract that? Does there need to be a re- reboot of your campaign? Well, I'm, you I'm not going to focus on the gossip about yeah. the campaign. I'm going to focus on what voters are telling me, mm-hmm. which is that they want a nominee on that stage who can go toe-to-toe against Donald Trump. And they believe I am that candidate. That they want someone on that debate stage who has the potential and the ability to unify our country. I am that candidate. So the challenge for me is to be in all of the places that where I need to introduce myself to people, which is why I'm spending time here in Nevada, which is why I'm spending time in Iowa. Um, it is, you know, one of the challenges is we've got to raise the money to be able to be on TV and talk to people. Um, you know, I didn't start this campaign transferring $10 million in as startup capital to build a, a, a campaign. Um, you know, there's another candidate who started this campaign with a, a list of, a very fresh list from having run for president last time of over a million people. So there are challenges that we have, but I am very much in the game. And in most polling, in the top five, it is still early. And I think that that to follow kind of the punditry around what is going on with the campaign is to overlook what's happening on the street mm-hmm. and places like the Culinary um, Union and, and that visit or what was happening at the California Convention in terms of the kind of um, warmth and enthusiastic warmth that we experienced when I was on that stage. Right. So we heard that there was going to be a plan, right, to shift staff. And obviously you have shifted staff from New Hampshire to Iowa, sort of not focused on New Hampshire as much. There was some talk that might happen in Nevada. But, I mean, given sort of the enthusiasm you saw at the culinary, you know, the connections you've made with Nevadans, is there still a plan to shift staff from Nevada to Iowa, or are you keeping I the same level of staff I will keep you posted, here? but I'm going to tell you something. Nevada is very, very important to me. I have done work over years that has been to the benefit of Nevada and families, including working very closely with Catherine Cortez Masto on the foreclosure crisis, where we took on the five big banks in the United States to make sure that the homeowners of Nevada um, and, and my state received compensation for what had been um, misconduct by those banks. And I'll continue to do that. I wanted to turn to something that you talked a lot about, actually, at the Culinary Union Hall, which is your Medicare for All plan, which is different than uh, some of your opponents that are proposing a Medicare for All plan that wouldn't involve private insurance, right, the single-payer government-run system. Your plan does involve private insurance companies. I'm curious, because you talk a lot about how your plan will allow union members to keep their plan, and it's my understanding that private plans can get certified as Medicare-compliant under your system. So what does that look like for the unions? I mean, how does that change their plans from what they are now if they need to become Medicare-compliant? Right. So one of the reasons that I think my Medicare for All plan has been described as, frankly, the best Mm -hmm. is because everyone will get covered under my plan. Everyone. So unlike some people whose plans, by their own admission, will not cover as many as 10 million people, mine will cover everyone. It'll bring down cost. I'll get rid of co-pays and deductibles. And I'm going to require that the insurance companies also play by our rules if they're going to play in our plan, okay, to your point. As it relates to the unions, part of the reason that I came up with and structured the plan the way I did is I heard from our unions, including Culinary 226, 
And they said to me, Kamala, look, we've negotiated these plans where over the course of the negotiation, we have sacrificed wages for more coverage. And we don't want to lose that. And so under the the Bernie Elizabeth plan, that's a a, a four-year transition, essentially. And I said, no, I'm going to give the unions more time to negotiate so we have a 10-year transition. And then also I heard from folks who said, we like our private plan. And so don't take away the option of us having a private plan under your Medicare plan. And frankly, ultimately, I just decided that it it is not right for any leader to take away people's choice. And on this issue, people want their choice. I know, having gone through this system with my mother, that when you're making decisions about health care, that's one of the most personal decisions a person can make. And the government shouldn't be in the position of taking away your options in that regard. So the culinary union plan is often described as a Cadillac plan. It has all these robust benefits. You know, they have the culinary health center. They're sort of, you know, one of the, the gold standards, they think, of, of health care in Nevada and yeah, even nationally, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, under your plan, how that kind of a Cadillac plan, you know, fits into the Medicare model, right? Are, are all plans going to have that same level of benefits? Are they going to have to pay an extra premium to have those extra benefits? I'm just wondering how, the, the how that factors The companies in. are going to have to compete. They're going to have to compete. But everyone will be covered, um, including people with pre-existing conditions. We will also extend coverage to include vision and dental and hearing aids, which are very expensive for our seniors. And and everyone's going to have to compete. And, you know, the, the beauty of competition is that the best will rise. I wanted to shift to talking uh, a little bit, something that I think one of my colleagues talked to you about earlier this year when she sat down with you, but the issue of online gaming, which is you know a big issue here with the, the casino industry. Um, there was a decision earlier this year issued by the Trump administration on the Wire Act saying that the Wire Act applies to all forms of interstate gambling, which basically would prohibit you know online gambling overall. It used to just apply to sports betting. I'm curious what you think about that, if you think that there is a place for, for online gambling moving forward in this country. I mean, I think that we have to um, take a look at what the plans are. But I want to say this, that um, there has to be regulation, whatever we do. And and we also have to address the fact that we have to support the sovereignty of the tribe. And we need to make sure that we are doing whatever we do in a way that respects the sovereignty of states also and respects – um, the the need for regulation. So, and the issue here, right, is that it's it's interstate, right? So the federal government has a role in, in online gambling because it it does cross state lines. So you know, Nevada has this robust industry here, but it's here it's it, within our state, right? So we're able to regulate it. I'm just curious if you think you know, with the proper regulations, if there is a place for for online gambling appropriately regulated at the it, federal it, level. I mean, that's an abstract point, right? We'd have to see how it actually. It plays out, and the details matter. Okay. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about marijuana, obviously a big issue here, and in your state where it's been legalized recreationally. um, I know you faced some criticism on the campaign trail over your position just Obviously, you were a prosecutor. As part of that, was going after people with drug-related crimes. I know your position, you know, eventually changed. You know, you supported medical marijuana. And I've always you've supported gotten, medical marijuana, right, right. And then you've yeah. now gotten to the point where you support it recreationally as well. So I'm just curious what sort of your your own thought process was going through that and sort of seeing it as a prosecutor and seeing the impact that it had on people. Well, listen. One of the reasons that I became a prosecutor is because I knew that this this criminal justice system needs to be reformed, and I decided to go in and do it on the inside. You know. 
there are people who you know are on the debate stage who voted for the crime bill, who wrote the crime bill, who supported the crime bill. Um, and but th- where I stand is that we need to legalize marijuana. There's no question in my mind. It has contributed to America's system of mass incarceration, and um, not only do we need to legalize it, but we also need to give people who have been now, because of this war on drugs, which was a failed, failed, failed policy, we need to give people an opportunity to actually be in line to get the jobs. This is now a new industry that is a cash industry where people are making a whole lot of money for doing exactly what these young men and women were doing, which is selling weed. And now they've been designated felons for life. So part of my perspective and my policy is not only to, to, to legalize it, but to say that those men and women have to be in line, first in line, to get the jobs, including the licenses, to run the businesses. Because this is just, from my perspective, a matter of, of fairness, of equity, and it's pretty simple, which is, you know, you can't have a whole bunch of people prancing around now making a ton of money off of what they did, what, what previous generations of people, thousands and thousands did, that caused them to be designated felons for life and excluded from so many opportunities that were about their own empowerment and economic well-being. So California and Nevada obviously have had to come up with a framework, right, for, for yeah. you know, what it looks like to reg- regulate recreational marijuana now that it's legal. If it's legalized on a federal level, what, what do you think the balance should be between state and federal regulation on recreational marijuana? Give me examples of what you mean. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously Nevada has its own rules. California has its own rules. Is it legalized nationally yeah, no, and then states have their no, own? Absolutely. Okay. No, we have to standardize okay. it. We have to standardize it. Um, and that's part of why I'm pushing for th- that under the federal law that it, it is legalized because we, we can't have different approaches in different states. And the other piece of this is that until we legalize it at a federal level, there are issues that are about banking and the financial consequences and taxes and all of that. So we just we need to have federal standards. There's no question. So I have one more policy question for you, and then we have a couple of fun questions that we've been asking all the candidates okay. at the end. The last one, which I think is really interesting, I believe you were the first presidential candidate to publicly come out in support of decriminalizing sex work. Uh, which is, I thought, is an interesting position. Obviously, not all candidates are there or don't have a firm position on the issue. It's interesting here in Nevada, obviously, because yeah. we do have legalized sex work in some counties. I'm wondering how you envision that process of decriminalizing sex work taking place, you know, nationally, on a jurisdiction level. What, what does that look like? Well, let me start with my, you know, my work in, in terms of my background. Um, for a large part of my career, I've specialized in crimes and harm against women and children. And there are so many women who have been criminalized, incarcerated, abused by a system that disproportionately focused on them and did not recognize their life experiences. And so my perspective on this is that um, these women should not be criminalized. When I was district attorney of San Francisco, I focused on, for example, a population that some called teenage prostitutes, but I said, no, we should call them sexually exploited youth. So many of them were runaways. They'd been in the foster care system. And what was happening is they were being arrested and being thrown in juvenile hall. So I, I was a leader in saying, no, let's do a, not have a different approach. And so we created a safe house. And the point being, don't criminalize them. And so that is my perspective on the issue. And, but I also have worked for years and feel very strongly about the need to make sure there are consequences for, for traffickers, mm-hmm. people who are trafficking 
in 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 the sale and the and the purchase of human beings mm-hmm. for profit a system that often is not only about profit based on the sale of human beings but with that comes an incredible amount of abuse physical abuse emotional abuse mental abuse so that's how I feel about the issue. What does that look like, though, for people who, who do choose to engage in sex work and want to engage in it in a lawful, regulated way? Well, I'm for decriminalizing it, um, meaning that I, I do not believe that these women should be incarcerated. Wonderful. So we'll get to our fun questions at the end. Okay. So we have three of them for you. The first one, which I know is going to seem a little silly, but you'll get why I'm asking it in a second, but we'd like you to name and order the first four early nominating states. Oh, Okay. Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Okay, good. You got it right. Okay. So that's good because we've been asking people because a lot of the, the polls uh, and national folks seem to sometimes forget that Nevada comes third. So yeah. I just like to make yeah. sure that... First in the West. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just uh, like to make sure and make make a point uh-huh, with that. Uh-huh. The West Coast is the best coast. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yes, exactly. I heard the governor say that yesterday. Yeah, quoting yeah. Him. He, yeah, exactly. He had, and it uh, yeah. reminded people it's Nevada. Not, yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly. Okay, the second one is if you were a casino game, which one would you be? Poker. Poker, why? I, I love poker. My grandfather taught me how to play poker when okay. I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, as a lawyer, too, you probably have to have a good poker face, you know, yeah, and be a good... Yeah, yeah, it's all of that. It's all of that. Hold your cards yeah. close to your uh-huh, chest. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. Five cards dead. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and our last one, uh, what's your favorite movie with a scene in Nevada? You know, it's a classic. Okay. goes way back. Sister Act. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I didn't yeah. even remember that was in Nevada. Yeah. Reno, I think it was. Yeah. 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 Very good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for joining on thank the podcast. You. It's been great. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so uh, we've got Michelle on, and you are you are across the state, and by across the state, I mean about forty five minutes south of me in Carson City. How's it going? Good. How are you doing, Joey? Doing well. And uh, you have just written a a big long series. Well, it's not quite done yet, but uh, called the Cannabis Files. Yes. And it's it's a it, I mean it's it's covering a lot of things, right? I mean, the cannabis industry here in Nevada. It's complicated. And I think you start your story off by saying, you know, the rollout seemed really simple and easy starting out. But as we've seen, it's gotten more and more complicated. And there may have been some things that didn't go according to plan or maybe things that weren't so kosher. So can you kind of walk me through why you started reporting on this and, and, you know, how you were reporting on it? Yeah. So um, a couple of reasons why I got interested in in doing this as a series. Um, One of the things was that things were super secretive. So the last time that they won, uh, that a bunch of dispensary licenses were handed out, and you know these are potentially huge business opportunities, each one of them, they didn't even tell you the name of the business that won. You just knew that a certain number of businesses won a license in a certain jurisdiction. So it was just absolutely minimal information. And the reason for that was because the Department of Taxation was in charge of regulating this industry, and they have uh, laws to protect the confidentiality of taxpayers. And I think some of this has to do with they've got individual businesses that are paying taxes all the time, and you don't want to maybe have certain information out there for your competitor to know how well your company is doing. I think it's sort of those types of reasons um, that taxpayer information is super secretive. But Governor Sisolak back in May signed a bill that gave basically what I think is a reasonable level of 
transparency to the process. I mean, you finally knew the name of businesses that won these licenses and the names of people that are in the industry. So there was just a ton of data to go through, and I kind of thought it would be something that would take maybe a couple days. I thought maybe maybe that afternoon I could have a story out about what the findings were. Um, but here we are, like six months after the fact, and, and, and still trying to understand everything uh, that is in these records that have been released. I was going to say, and you and other reporters and interns, you've you've spent hours and hours and hours and days just inputting information into this yeah in, into this file that you've made yeah just um a lot of analysis going on um mainly because you got you know i think we're up to about 1500 different names that are in this industry and so i mean you got to google each one of them and try to figure out if you're talking about the same person when you find some google results on this person um so we've done a ton of that we've tried to analyze are these men or women that are that are owners and like how that all goes and then just trying to understand uh, what company won what and what what are they prohibited from doing because of various moratoriums that are in various counties and cities so it's a very complicated business uh, more so than probably any other type of business because it's illegal at the federal level and it's highly regulated and it's sort of stigmatized so local jurisdictions are not just like oh yeah of course you can open a dispensary here there's so much scrutiny that goes into it um, you've got to keep it certain distances from other types of businesses. So there's just been a lot of drama going on. Um, and then as we've seen in recent weeks, um, the kind of the Trump world has clashed with the marijuana world. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, some of his associates um, were found to have tried to get into Nevada's uh, marijuana industry. They were not successful in winning a license. Um, but this has raised questions about do we really know who's coming into our industry? Could it be people like these guys that were uh, had ties to Ukraine? So we, we kind of need to put the brakes on and figure out what's going on in the industry. So I hope this series can really explain uh, and unravel just some of these questions that have been lingering in my mind. Now, you were talking about the licen- the licensing process, and I mean, I think that's a big part of the, the whole marijuana industry is this licensing process. But also, it's it's difficult to get a license, but maybe not as difficult as people were thinking, and, and the processes are hazy. And you had mentioned in your story that one person had 11 licenses. Why would someone need to have more than one license? You have to get one for every jurisdiction you're in. So they are by county and sometimes by city. So there was at least one business that did get a full 11 licenses. Upon closer inspection, it looks like a lot of these licenses are for a potential dispensary in a rural county. So they're not maybe the most highly coveted. That's one of the things that I found is, um, you know, I mean, there were 92 people applying to get a dispensary in Clark County, obviously you want to be in the population center. And um, some of these rural counties, hardly anybody applied to them. So it was less competition out in these rural areas. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of the rural counties are not quite comfortable with recreational dispensaries coming into town and have put moratoriums in their counties. So potentially, a lot of these licenses are just not even going to be able to be used. They're not going to be able to build a dispensary, even if they won you know, this competitive process. Um, so part of the, the situation we're in right now is potentially 32 licenses, more than half, that we don't believe will actually come to bear a dispensary. They might be redistributed to other places around the state that could actually use them. And so shifting gears a little bit, you know, you talked about how you, you kind of 
wanted this to be a one-off story and then it turned into this much larger thing. Did you, do you feel like you learned a lot doing this process and do you feel like you've uncovered a lot that you're going to explain to people as, as you release more and more of these stories? I hope that people learn a lot out of these stories. Um, I hope people, you know, see names on these. Part of this is, is revealing some of the names of people that are involved in the industry. I think people might not know that certain individuals are involved in the industry. That'll hopefully be a revelation for some people. And I think people will just get a better understanding of the challenges that face this industry and potential weaknesses and maybe things that they don't need to worry about. So I hope that it's an educational opportunity. I know I'm learning a lot and I know I'm finding like a lot of rabbit trails to, to go down because there's just so much to it. So I hope it's uh, informative and interesting to people. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Michelle. All right. Thanks so much. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the episode, and oh look, it's it's Michelle once again. You've you've joined me for another segment on this episode. Good to see you again, Joey. Yes, it's uh, been a whole th- thirty seconds. <laughs> so we're gonna do another indie read segment. We had one with Riley uh, a couple weeks ago, and he told us about his book that he's been reading. And you said you've been reading a couple of books. You want to tell me about about those books and what they're about? Well, first of all, I read a book recently called Four Hundred and Thirty Eight Days. It was a daily deal on Audible, so I got it at a steep discount, Um, but it was also very entertaining. I, by the way, love to listen to audiobooks and almost never read books in real form, so I will fight you you on that. You do enough... (laughs) <laughs> you do you do enough reading of just the indie stories uh, yeah. to to justify your reading quota for the day. I yeah, think. I like to read and do my house cleaning at the same time, that kind of thing. So, uh, so this book called Four Hundred and Thirty Eight Days is the true story of a fisherman who was from El Salvador, was living in Mexico and doing some fishing commercially, and just happened to get stuck in a massive uh, storm, tropical storm. He had a buddy that was just helping him out that day to try to to get fish in the deep sea. The guy was completely freaked out, but the more experienced sailor was trying to calm him down. Uh, Regardless, they survived this massive five-day storm, but then they got completely blown off course. Their motor went out. They had just no communication. So long story short, they end up floating in the ocean for 438 days. So I think the most compelling part of the book was uh, two things. One of it was just this guy, um, how do you keep yourself uh, maintaining hope in the middle of the ocean when you just have no human contact um, and you're not sure this experience is ever going to end? This guy ended up being out on the open ocean for longer than anyone in a similar situation has ever been. And and when he actually reached land in the Marshall Islands, um, a lot of people didn't believe his story because it was just too out outlandish. The other interesting part I found was was the media's response to this guy. You know, he's just a humble fisherman, and then he he survives this crazy ordeal, and um, the media attention was just crushing to him. So I thought it was interesting how the book kind of portrayed how that um, affects somebody that may not have asked for the limelight and has been through just a really horribly traumatic experience. So as a journalist, I found that pretty interesting. And then you said you had you had another book that you had just read? Another book uh, that I'd seen on a lot of 
uh, recommendations, including the Reese Witherspoon Book Club, which I guess is a spinoff sort of of the Oprah Book Club, um, has been a book called Where the Crawdads Sing. And um, it was just a really good read that I just didn't want to put down. It's about a, a girl who is basically abandoned in the swampland of North Carolina, I believe. She ends up kind of learning how to survive all by herself as a as a young girl, and then basically becomes accused of a of a murder. And so this whole book kind of leads to this really dramatic series of events in a courtroom. It's just really well written. This and this girl is becoming a scientist, and she's become a naturalist, and and she has to have uh, this this boy teach her how to read, um, but she makes it, and then she encounters you know, she's accused of murder and goes through this horrible trial. So um, it almost reminded me a little bit of To Kill a Mockingbird because of the courtroom element of it and the the Southern element of it. Uh, but it was just a real total page turner that I would really recommend reading. It has a great twist at the end. So definitely recommend that one. That one's by Delia Owens. All right. Well, that's two good books recommended there by Michelle, and we'll hopefully have some more good books to recommend for everyone soon. But uh, thanks for being on. Uh, the last segment of the podcast, Indie Reads segment. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Joey. And it's been a, it's been a uh, Joey and Michelle full podcast. Well, and, and of course, Megan and Kamala Harris as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're the stars. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Senator Harris for joining us on the podcast today, as well as Megan and Michelle for their always excellent reporting. If you like the podcast and you want to support us, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform, and also by going to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, and clicking the Support Our Work button on the top of our page. We have several newsletters, including the one on the 2020 race written by Megan, so make sure to check those out as well. If you have comments, criticism, or praise, you can send those along to me at joey at the nvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, email editors at the nvindy.com. Our original theme song is from Reno band People With Bodies, and you can hear more of their music by searching them on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>